Well, I invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to open with me to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in the New Testament and chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, you can find your place there, we'll come to it in just a moment. This morning we resume our series, we've been off two Sundays, and so we're resuming the series entitled God's Grand Design, The Beauty of Biblical Complementarity. And this is part 16 in this series. And in this series we are looking at, in case you're visiting or you're new, we've been looking at God's design of mankind as male and female, two distinct sexual kinds made in the image of God with equal worth and dignity and personhood, yet different and complementary in nature and function, a complementary, a divine fittedness of man and woman. And through this series, we have attempted to see through all of Scripture, really the whole Bible, how this complementary design is to manifest itself in life and especially in the church and in the family. So next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at Ephesians chapter 5, the great grand text on the complementarity in marriage. And we will see there God's sublime design for marriage that we didn't know before. It's revealed in Christ. The following Sunday after that, we will wrap all of this up and conclude this series, I think. That's the, that's the goal. This morning, kind of between text on marriage, so our last two times together, we looked at 1 Peter 3, we thought on marriage, husbands and wives, next Sunday, Ephesians 5, marriage again. But between these texts on marriage, we are going to consider singleness and complementarity. Singleness and complementarity. What does it mean to live out this design as a single man or woman in the church? We have many in our church, family who are single. We're thankful for you. And you're single and you're at various stages of life, maybe in that singleness or unmarried state. And I I just think it would be an oversight on my part not to speak directly to you as we have spoken directly to husbands and wives. And just as it is helpful for single people to hear God's instructions to husbands and wives, so also it's instructive for all of us to hear God's instructions to single people because we are a family. Part of the family, it's part of the health of our family, and we'll say more on that in just a moment. Throughout this series on God's design, there has certainly been an emphasis on marriage and family as the relationship where complementarity of men and women is most uniquely and obviously displayed. 
So we have spent considerable time on that, going all the way back to Genesis 2, the foundation when God created the man and the woman, and he created the institution of marriage and the command to be fruitful and multiply. And we looked at the patriarchs and their example of marriage. And we saw Paul's instruction to younger women to love their husbands and love their children. And we spent the last two weeks in First Peter 3 on marriage specifically. And there's a danger in that kind of emphasis. And the danger is that we mistakenly define manhood and womanhood almost exclusively in terms of marriage and family. And that we wrongly imply that unless you are married or even married with children, you cannot experience true manhood or womanhood. That would be an error. We may intentionally, unintentionally, excuse me, communicate that there is something defective about singleness. That you're not living up to God's design and purpose as a man or woman if you are single. And that would be false. The one who most obviously exposes the falseness of that notion is Jesus himself. We've already noted in our series that Jesus became incarnate, that is, he took on flesh, he became a human being, he became fully a human being, but he became incarnate as a man. We saw that that's important to God's design and his model for biblical manhood, but we also see that he was intentionally single and celibate. Jesus was. And Jesus, and we could speculate on lots of things of why that is. That's not my point. My point here is just that Jesus embodied and expressed true humanity and true manhood more than any person that has ever lived, and he was not married. So true manhood and true womanhood is not wrapped up simply in marriage. Marriage... Romantic fulfillment, sexual union, having children are not intrinsic to being full human beings or being fully a man or a woman. So I want to say that so clearly in case our emphasis feels distorted or a misapplication. 1 Corinthians 7, listen to Paul now. Here we are. We've been in 1 Corinthians a few different times in this series. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is beginning to address questions that the church has written to him about, that they want him to address. And he's going to do it. This is Paul who, oh, by the way, was single. He was single by choice for the sake of gospel ministry. And in the beginning of this chapter, after speaking about instructions regarding marriage, he says this. I'll put it on the screen. Verses 7 and 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And he means in the context, not married. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain 
That is, single, even as I. It may surprise us when we read those words. It's a little startling. Indeed, it may surprise us to learn that when we come to the New Testament, singleness is not viewed negatively. It's not seen as an unfortunate disadvantage or a hardship or a problem to be solved, but quite the opposite. It is celebrated as a desirable state for its unique advantages. And that might surprise us. Indeed, Paul seems to commend it here even over marriage. I wish that you were all like I am. Each one has his own gift. This is not a command from Paul, but it's a desire. I wish that you were all. And then he says, I think it's better for you not to be married, he says, to the unmarried and to the singles. It's good to remain unmarried. Again, that can sound shocking. In fact, as he goes on in this chapter, we'll see a little bit more later on, but as he's continuing, he, he has to clarify, if you look all the way down to verse 28 of chapter 7 that we're in, he clarifies this because he sounds so strong on these things. But if, he says, if you should marry, you have not sinned. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing statement? We, we tend to think the opposite. I mean, the good, it's marriage. That's marriage. It's all about marriage, right? And Paul gives, well, if you marry, you haven't sinned. It's quite a statement, isn't it? So if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. (laughs) And I'm trying to spare you. Put that on the Hallmark card next time. Such a sentimental guy, isn't he? You say, Paul's pretty negative, isn't he, about marriage? This is just like the bachelor in him coming out. What is this? Well, he's not negative. We're going to see next week. He speaks more sublimely about marriage than anybody in the Bible. He's not negative, but he's realistic. And Paul has such a view, because he'll go on to say, in in light of this present distress, Paul's thinking of the the age we live in and the the future, our future glory that's coming. He, He measures everything in light of that. And he wants us to measure marriage and singleness in in light of that reality. He's a realist. He knows marriage brings difficulty. It's not the be-all, end-all of life. Not all your problems are solved by marriage. But a whole host of new ones come, right? And he's real. Singleness as a gift. That's my heading here. Singleness as a gift. That's what Paul says. Now I said it may surprise us to read a chapter like this. It may surprise us of the positive view of singleness singleness in the New Testament, especially in light of the Old Testament emphasis, where under the Old Covenant, marriage and children are part and parcel to God's kingdom purposes. All the way back again to that foundational chapter of Genesis chapter 2, when we first read after God created the man, we read those words, it is not good for the man to be alone. And we wrongly conclude that singleness must be a not 
good by definition. It must be inferior and less desirable than marriage. We misunderstand that verse. We looked at that verse. Paul gives that verse in the context of this creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill and subdue the earth. And he cannot do that by himself. In that sense, it's not good for him to be alone. This, that statement is not a statement about the condition of singleness under the new covenant. As the story advances in the Old Testament, again, marriage and children are indispensable to God's kingdom expression in the nation of Israel. Starting with Abraham, the whole promise, and with Sarah, and not having children, and how important that is. In fact, under the old covenant, one's name, one's inheritance in the land, the preservation of God's covenant people, Israel, are bound up with marriage and children. So indeed, under the old covenant, to be unmarried or even childless would be a distinct disadvantage. In fact, sometimes seen as a curse and would be rare indeed. The one single person I'm aware of that's most prominent in the Old Testament is the prophet Jeremiah. But God told him to be single as a sign of judgment on the nation. Doesn't sound real encouraging. However, there is a great seismic paradigm shift with the coming of Jesus and the inauguration of the new covenant. As Jesus fulfilled, we've seen this all through as we think of the story of the Bible and how Jesus fulfills what was promised and shadowed, foreshadowed under the old covenant. As Jesus fulfills old covenant forms and types and shadows, so many of those things are transmuted under the new covenant. We've seen that in so many ways. But one thing that is affected that you may not be aware of is the view of singleness. Did you know that? Singleness as a gift. Let me just, before I jump in there to 1 Corinthians 7, I want to just lay some foundations. Let me give you three kind of new covenant foundations for a view of singleness. Why is it positive under the new covenant that seems to be at odds from perhaps under the old covenant? Why is it celebrated and even encouraged here by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me just give you these three foundations. Now, all of these are massive. All of these deserve sermons or sermon series, but I'm just going to state them rather quickly with a few texts. Number one, under the new covenant, God's covenant people are produced through new birth and regeneration, not physical descent. There's massive paradigm shift from old covenant to new. It's not about being a physical descendant of Abraham. It's not about the physical nation of Israel and physical birth and physical descent. No, new covenant is through new birth. It's the language. to be. Remember, that's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, the great teacher, and he was confused. You must be born again, Nicodemus. I don't care who your dad is. I don't care you're a descendant of Abraham. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God and the 
The Bible uses that kind of language of new birth. It's not through physical descent. And because of that, it's available to everyone, to all, regardless of race, regardless of who your parents are, regardless of ethnicity. This new covenant, this gospel, so that the creation mandate, back to Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with image bearers, and then repeated to Noah, under the new covenant is transmuted to great commission. Not be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Go make disciples of all the nations. Yes, go into all the world and make disciples, not simply make babies, he says. Make disciples. That's under the new covenant. That's how it's fulfilled. So that's one. Number two, second foundation, and it's inseparable. It just comes right out of number one. Christ family, which we call the church, spiritual family, is more permanent and precious than biological family. That's significant. Christ family, the church, the spiritual family is more permanent and indeed more precious than biological family. And that's not to put down biological family as part of God's good purpose Relationships based on Christ exceed physical family. Right? That's what was radical about what Jesus taught. I'm not trying to diminish the family, but there's something more essential. So remember, in Luke chapter 8, we're told when his, Jesus' mother, came to him and his brothers also, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, it was reported to him. Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered. These are really, really shocking words. <laughs> he answered and said, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. It's incredible. My mother and my brothers, that is my family, my relationship, are those related to me this way, spiritually. Again, he's not demeaning his mother or his family, but there's something that supersedes. Jesus came to call into being the permanent family of God. It's more essential, it's more blessed, this relationship to him, this family that we call the church. That's not merely sentimental. It's not just supposed to be in theory, but that's the reality of who we are. So single people are full members of this family and experience being spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and spiritual brothers and sisters. That's the reality. That's even greater than biological family or biological marriage. It's supposed to be real. Again, in another time, Peter asked Jesus, if you remember these words, after Jesus is talking about how hard it is to become part of the kingdom, Peter said, behold, we've left everything and followed you. Remember this? 
This is Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sakes, but that he shall receive, listen to this, a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children along with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. Do you hear it? Not just, you're going to be repaid, the resurrection. Oh, that's true. That's gloriously true. We've thought on that many times. But he says, no, right now, you lost mom because you're following me. You get a hundredfold right now. What's he talking? He's talking about the church. He's talking about this family, this relationship that you're not missing out. Isn't that quite a promise? That's the profound reality of a spiritual family. Now, I, I realize we, we must live this out. And we don't always do well. And I would just encourage, especially those of you who are single, whatever stage of life, help us to live this out so that you experience this as a family. That you're not invisible. Because you're not married, there can always be that feel. I just don't quite fit. You're fully a member. You're indispensable to the family. But it's work to live this out. And we need to think how to live this out and how we include and how single people are spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. We need to guard against making our family an idol. That is our biological family. Where we have this mentality, well, the church is here to serve my family. No, no, this church family supersedes your family spiritually, permanently. Oh, yes, it's an encouragement to your family. And we're to be faithful in our family. And it's very sweet when our biological family and our spiritual family overlap. Absolutely. But there is a tendency among those of us married with children, with families, to be so focused that we are not welcoming to those without. So, third, let me, let me get to the last foundation here. And it flows again right out of that one. Number three, marriage and family are temporary for this age. The church is primary and eternal. This is that new covenant reality. Marriage and family are temporary for this age. The church, this family, the spiritual family we're in is permanent. It's primary. It's what Jesus came to make, to create, to build. Again, remember that story in Matthew chapter 22 when those Sadducees, those leaders, Jewish leaders are trying to trap Jesus with these questions and they're asking him about the nature of the resurrection and that hypothetical story about a woman whose husband dies and then her brother the husband's brother marries and it happens seven times and they're trying to trap him oh who in the when they when they're raised whose wife is she going to be do you remember jesus pretty stunning answer you are mistaken not understanding the scriptures or the power of god for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage marriage is temporary 
People speak of marriage as this forever relationship. That's false. It's not true. Marriage is temporary for this age. Now, when you first read that, if you're married and happily married, that can seem really disappointing. Like, wow, that, I can't conceive of that. <laughs> we'll learn next week, I'll get a little ahead of myself when we get to Ephesians 5, that this whole beautiful marriage, most intimate of all relationships, is but a signpost to something a thousand times greater, more satisfying, more beautiful Christ in the church. And married people, we have to take that by faith when we read texts like that. That, <laughs> I don't know how it's going to, he has something so much greater. If, if the beauty of this marriage I experience is only but a sign to some greater reality. So we have to take that. But here's my encouragement to single people. Again, this marriage is temporary. So single folks, you are not missing out on anything if you belong to Christ. You're, you're not. I know it can feel like that. Especially if you're single and that's not your choice. And we can dwell on what I'm missing out on in this marriage and romance and perhaps children and all those things. And I, I know that can be a very present reality, but that's why this view is so important to have this view in mind. No, no, that's, that's temporary. There's something greater. So marriage is only a sign to something much, much greater and more lasting. And so even those who are single, you've got to take that by faith also and live that way. Those are the foundations, really important foundations for a view. Now, I said it's, it, it surprises us when we come from old covenant to new covenant, but the Old Testament did anticipate this. I'll just give you one text from Isaiah 56, because it's such a beautiful text, so unexpected. It did anticipate this, even in that culture where marriage and family really was everything. Isaiah sees a future day. He's talking about Isaiah 56, the Lord speaking, when my salvation is about to come, my righteousness is to be revealed. That's, that's Romans gospel language. When this new covenant comes, he says this, verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Oh no, you'll be part of it. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my statutes and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them. I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. That amazing. He takes eunuchs here under the old covenant, those who are forced into the category of singleness and childlessness who have been emasculated in some way either intentionally or at birth again that would have been a desperate condition in israel now they did that in other nations to serve the king but in israel these foreigners these eunuchs that would have been a desperate hopeless condition and god promises in this new covenant when it comes i will give you a name that's better than sons and daughters you're not missing anything. 
something even better. Isn't that a great promise? That's an Old Testament promise fulfilled in Christ. So all of that is kind of biblical theology, new covenant foundations for a view of singleness. So let's get back to it now. Singleness as a gift, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But you've got to have that foundation in mind if you will understand what Paul is saying. Because Paul, if you read 1 Corinthians 7, it can be jarring. But he has this view in mind. Singleness as a gift. Paul views, again, 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, look there again, and verse 7. I wish, he says, that all men were, even as I myself am, as again, single, I'm married. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one and another in that. Isn't, isn't, again, isn't that remarkable? Paul, Paul sees singleness and marriage as a gift. Now, for Paul, in the book of Corinthians... This charisma, this gift is something that God freely, graciously bestows for the strengthening of the church. That's what a gift is. That's how Paul uses it all through his letters. And Paul views singleness as a gift, just like marriage is a gift. We tend not to think of marriage as a gift. We tend to think of marriage as our right. No, marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. And he just puts them on the same level. And he recognizes that this is God's gifting. Each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. So he's not going to command you must be single or you must be married. No, it's a gift. Both are gifts for the building up of the church. Elizabeth Elliot, who was married and her husband was martyred and then lived over 40 years as a single woman, just notes this. She says to single people like herself, if you are single today, the portion assigned to you for today is singleness. It is God's gift. Singleness ought not to be viewed as a problem, nor marriage as a right. God in his wisdom and love grants either as a gift. Singleness as a gift. So let me give you two things under that heading one all christ focused singleness is a gift just highlight that so we tend not to think this way and i know if you're single it can be hard to say but maybe that's a gift i don't want i know so let's just linger here for a minute all christ focused singleness is a gift whether you choose singleness voluntarily for the sake of Christ, like Paul, or whether it is a season of your life that you are in, maybe not by choice. It is a gift in that it is God's enablement for the building up of his church. So note this. Singleness does not require a special calling or an unusual ability. I want to correct something that I think is a misnomer. Singleness does not require a special calling or an unusual ability. There are different reasons for singleness. Yes, sometimes it is a special calling. Jesus referred to that in Matthew 19. 
Incidentally, when he was asked about marriage and whether you could divorce for any reason at all, and he kind of gave those stunning words that uh, no, except for the cause of unchastity or pornea, you, you cannot divorce. And they were just stunned and said, well, well it's, it's better not to marry. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' standard for marriage dissuaded them from marriage. And he just said, well, not all can accept this. And then he said, there are those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. That is, they intentionally choose singleness, using that eunuch as a euphemism there, singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. So yes, there are those, Paul is one of those. Remember, Paul had the right, he said, to take a believing wife like the rest of the apostles, but he gave up that right for the sake of the gospel. He understood his unique ministry and what he was called to. So yes, at times there is that, but that's more the exception. There are different reasons. That may be one of those reasons, but that's not the majority reason. Mostly, it's a matter of God's providence person has lost a spouse or experienced divorce or they have a desire to be married but it hasn't happened yet for various reasons again that's who Paul is mainly addressing in 1 Corinthians 7 he's not addressing Paul type missionaries to be single He's talking to the church and saying, I, I just wish all of you could be like me. He's talking to ordinary folks in the pew and unmarried folks and those who haven't been married yet and those who have experienced widowhood or those who have been divorced or abandoned. He's talking to those folks here and saying signalness is a gift. Because Paul has a kingdom perspective. This kind of singleness, even if he didn't choose it, is a gift. That is, it's, it's not an inferior condition. It's not merely an unfulfilled, undesirable state where we see it only as negative. Paul says, it's a gift. Now, let me insert here. There are un godly reasons for being single I just i need to say that in our culture today because it's rampant in our culture today of men or women just perpetuating their adolescence to age 30 so they can play video games or have everything they want and have zero responsibility or commitment that's just selfish indulgence that's singleness for selfish indulgence for individualism, for just my freedom, right? Or fear of commitment or fear of marriage. God would call us to repent of that. Because that's not believing God's word. And that's not, that's not the category Paul is addressing here, right? So I want to insert that. Yes, there can be unbiblical, ungodly reasons for staying single just to perpetuate a self-indulgent, individualistic lifestyle that's all about you. And if that's you, then God would call you to repent and understand what he says, both about marriage and the beauty of Christ-focused singleness. So let me insert that there. 
the gift, when he talks about this being gift, what, what is that? The gift, so just this other note, the gift is God's enablement of a contented attitude contributing to a life of service without frustration or uncontrollable temptation. Again, a gift is something God graciously gives for the building up of his church. It's God's enablement with a contented attitude of this Christ-focused life of service without over-frustration or uncontrollable temptation. I think that's what he means in verse 9 of chapter 7 after he says, it's good for you to remain unmarried, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn, than to burn with passion, this uncontrollable passion, lust. Paul is giving a concession there. But the gift here is God's enablement to live this way. But here's where I think there's a misunderstanding of what is often called the, quote, gift of singleness. I hear people say it. Well, I I don't have the gift of singleness. Well, are you single? You have the gift of singleness today. (laughs) We tend to think that it's some superpower, right? Some superhuman ability to cope with this negative state of singleness. That it means, the gift of singleness means no attraction to the opposite sex. That it means no desire for marriage. And if those are true, I have the gift of singleness. It's not what he means. In God's providence, those are single. You have the gift of sing- God's enablement to live contented this way, understanding his purposes. Now, this contentment and reckoning and purpose doesn't mean there's no struggle. Just like the gift of marriage. Right? How, how for somebody to say, well, I mustn't have the gift of marriage... Because I I have struggles at times. Are you married? (laughs) You got the gift of marriage. Live like it. Right? So we wrongly conclude these things. So having the gift of marriage or, or excuse me, singleness as a gift doesn't mean no struggle. It doesn't mean no disappointment. It doesn't mean an absence of a desire for marriage. You may have a strong desire for marriage. Which is a good desire, a godly desire. Paul's not condemning that here. That's why he says, to each one God has given here. But he does give a God-enabled kingdom focus in your singleness and in your marriage. So in that sense, all Christ-focused singleness is a gift. Now, the second thing I want to note here. Number two, singleness has great kingdom advantages. And certainly, this is part of what Paul means by it being a gift. A preferable state. So look down with me now. We'll keep reading chapter 7, and I want to skip down to verse 32. Because he's going to return to this issue of not married or singleness. And he just gives something really practical here. Verse 32, let me put it on the screen for you. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy, both in body and spirit, holy, both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I say this to you for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul just gives, lays out, here are the advantages of singleness. Kingdom advantages. He's not thinking of self-indulgent advantages in your freedoms. Oh, there's a freedom. But here's, here's kingdom advantages. And the bottom line is to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's why it's Christ-focused singleness here. And it's just really practical. John Lee a single man who wrote just an excerpt for Desiring God used these three words for the advantages of singleness. And so I'll, I'll use them here as we'll come back to that outline. Focus, flexibility, and freedom. So what are the advantages of singleness? Greater focus, flexibility, and freedom in devotion to Christ than those who are married. That's what Paul says. Focus, undistracted devotion. You're not distracted by spouse and kids and all that comes with that. Talk to any married person or married people with kids. Again, those aren't negative. He's not trying to put down marriage. It may sound like that at first. He's just trying to show the advantages, kingdom advantages of singleness. There's Paul being a realist again. Marriage is hard and it's difficult and there are lots of things that call for your attention as one who's married and one who has kids. And that's good. And you worship God and you, that's part of your devotion to God that way. But it's different, isn't it, than one who is single who can have that single-mindedness of devotion. So focus, flexibility. Honestly, I envy your flexibility because you're single what you're able to respond to, what you're able to do in a moment's notice without having to say, like we say when we're married, I must check with my spouse first, right? Or the schedule or that. There's just a greater flexibility to respond and a freedom, a freedom to give yourself in devotion to Christ. So that's how Paul starts that in verse 32. I want you to be free from concern. So that your interests aren't divided here. And again, he's not thinking negative. It's worldly and spiritual. It's just the reality that you can have this undistracted devotion to the Lord in a way that married people cannot. And your availability and your freedom for the building up of the body has a distinct advantage in ways that married people can't. Again, Paul's purpose here for this kind of singleness is to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Singleness is for devotion to the Lord, not simply for self-indulgence. So I just encourage those of you who are in that state, single, again, whether younger or older, midlife, wherever you're at, don't waste this gift even if it doesn't feel like a gift to you right now, and, and you're still, your desire is to be married. Again, that desire for marriage is a good desire. Trust God's sovereignty and His providence. 
But don't don't think that, well, life's just going to start when I get married. Right now, it's a gift to you today. Don't squander it. Don't waste it. Don't become just self-indulgent and all about me. Think in terms of this gift for the body. So singleness has great kingdom advantages. The other thing it does is uniquely displays the all-sufficient, all-satisfying value of Christ alone. We'll see next week that marriage, marriage is a unique display of Christ in the church. Well, singleness also is a unique display of the glory of Christ because as you are single and content and giving yourself to serving and devotion to the Lord, you display in such unique ways where your treasure is. You display the gospel in such unique, profound ways that will baffle your coworkers, will baffle this culture. But you're content in your celibate singleness and giving yourself and not just buying more toys, and so, but you're content there and serving. Where's your hope? Where's your treasure? Well, it's not here. That treasure's coming. You point people to the reality, the truth of the gospel. You magnify that Christ is all sufficient for me. I don't need another person to complete me. Christ is my highest value and joy. That's the opportunity you have as one who is single. Now, this beautiful design of God of men and women, this complementary design that we've been looking at through this series, I want to say again, does not require marriage. It does not require children. It is lived out in this spiritual family as fathers and spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and brothers and sisters. And single men and single women, it will be lived out uniquely according to your manhood and womanhood in the context. But it doesn't diminish you or limit you at all. We'll think more, Lord willing, the concluding part of this whole series, what that biblical manhood and womanhood is. But I want you to hear, I want you to hear me say to all those single, you are indispensable to this family. May you thrive in this gift that God has given you today. If you're apart from Christ, this spiritual family, that's a first priority. Singleness can be miserable and seen as a waste or simply self-indulgent. Oh, to belong to Christ if you don't this morning. To have this hope, this treasure, to know that marriage and this life is temporary. It's passing away quickly, but what's coming is real and eternal. You begin with faith in Jesus as your Savior and experience Him as your treasure. Let me pray for us as we conclude. Oh, Father, help us now to believe Your Word, to trust Your Word. Whether we're married, whether we're single, whatever state we're in, whether we're young or older, may Christ be our treasure and our real hope. And may we have a, a contentment in life because we know Christ. 
even if we're experiencing difficulty in our singleness or our marriage. We look to Christ as our all-satisfying treasure. Magnify him to us today. We ask in his name.